Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with host Michael Lerner and Attitudinal Healing founders Jerry Jampolsky and Diane Chirincioni Jampolsky. This is part two of a two-part conversation titled Attitudinal Healing, Change Your Mind, Change Your Life. Jerry Jampolsky and Diane Chirincioni Jampolsky, uh, it's a delight to continue our conversation with you from this morning. I was reflecting on the morning and um, just kind of trying to bring together some of the things that we talked about in the morning. We, we talked about the journey each of you took uh, uh, from childhood to um, uh, finding each other and Jerry finding uh, Course in Miracles and um, sort of a broad scope of the work you've done together over the last 27 years? 35. 35, thank you. 35. And, um, and I also was really reflecting, Diane, you've said this before, but it really becomes very clear, the ways in which, Jerry, your learning disability has been a gift to the uh, Centers for Attitude and Healing. Um, and in so many ways, um, but basically the uh, one is simply that you needed to um, help others uh, who were struggling, help struggling children. And you needed to um, be able to help uh, uh, children and young people and others understand what you had found in simple terms. And that ability to focus on simplicity is a gift that I wish I had. Uh, I'm not good at simplicity. I, I see complexity. Uh, but I understand there is that. Uh, a tremendous gift in the ability to see and focus on simplicity. That's what all the great spiritual traditions do. There's a beautiful, I was reading the other day, a beautiful line from the Dalai Lama. He says something like, no need for complex philosophies. Uh, my heart is my temple. My mind is my temple. My religion is kindness. Uh, excuse me? And my religion is kindness. And my religion is kindness. That's mm -hmm. right. That's the last line in the no need for complex philosophies. My heart is my temple. My mind is my temple. My religion is kindness. Mm -hmm. And that ability, uh, um, because both of you, like the Dalai Lama, you both carry a full capacity for complexity. But to be able to focus on simplifying is something that I have yet to learn. And I'm, I'm working on it. There's this great expression that uh, I'm working from you, Jerry, I'm not sure, but it says, simplicity is difficult for a confused mind to understand. Right. <laughs> I find that such a comforting thing because I, like you, can get uh, very abstract, philosophical, etc. But when you live with Jerry Jampolsky for 35 years, you're learning how to just like get it down to, you know, uh, and, and, and now I, I'm a convert, although I can do both. So I understand your journey a little bit more. I used to attend board meetings when they were talking about finances, which were way above my head. So I continued to remind them, please tell me what you've been talking about 
like you're talking to a nine-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. And I understood it, and everyone else understood it better. (laughs) You know, it's very interesting. I realize that you carry that nine-year-old kid in you Mm. sort of visibly. Don't you think? sitting up there, there's something about you that's... I know. Nine-year-old. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. I know. It's true. It's true. It's like slightly wacky nine-year-olds kind of smiling out at you. And, you know, it's wonderful that you've been able to sustain that, that quality. I see a lot of value in that. Yeah, absolutely. A deep value. You know, Michael, there was one thing you said that I would sort of give Mm -hmm. another take on. You said that Jerry sought to share this with others. It's my experience that the children who were dying, Jerry sought them out because he was afraid of dying. Mm. And he wanted to learn from them. Mm. That's how it really began. He didn't think he had something great to share with others. Mm. It's and correct me if I'm wrong, Jerry, but it was that's how the giving and receiving is such that he believes that a small child has as much to share as the Dalai Lama. And we, we know we've been with the Dalai Lama, done documentaries with him, and I know he believes the same thing. And we had kids interviewing him in one of our documentaries, and he believes the same thing. So I think it's from that place. Jerry's searching the child who is actually going to die. The kids were all dying of leukemia in those days, at least 90% of them, and which is just the opposite now. And he wanted to learn from them because he was terrified of dying. Could you want to correct that, Jerry, or is that pretty close to? I don't know how I could be more clear mm-hmm. than you. So, so I just want to let you know, it's not like he thought he had something great and wanted to share with everybody. It's not That's that. That's really helpful. It hasn't been, you. that isn't what it was. Yeah. And it's never been, actually. Right. And you went on to do the same kind of work with HIV, which we haven't really focused. That's true. Um, yeah, 1982, when it was named, none of us knew how we got it. Like we were just talking about this at lunch, um, and, uh, or after lunch. And uh, we wanted to know about it, so Jerry and I and another staff member went over to San Francisco General, which was the first residential hospital. They had six, six healthcare workers and 100 patients. Nobody knew how you got it. And... Um, Dr. Paul Volberding was 33 then, and Donald Abrams, who you, I understand you know. Donald's like one of our closest friends and um, to this day. And uh, Donald was the head of research, and uh, we, said, we came to learn about it. And then we said, if you ever need us, we're here. And then uh, about a year later, they had 100 healthcare workers and 3,000 patients, and 2,000 had died. And uh, a couple of the staff people, J.D. Moynihan, had knew about our work, and uh, Donald did was doing the research and noticed that there were certain people that would come, patients that were different. And the common denominator was that on Thursdays, they went across to Tiburon to the Center for Attitudinal Healing and the first HIV group, and the support group we had. And uh, so they asked us to come back. They had burnout. They said, will you help us with our burnout? Will you do? And we said, no. We can do that, but that's not what we're here for. We're here to learn with you. And um, you want to share, Jerry, a little bit about the creation of the group there? I think, I think we did that this morning. And um, did we? Did we talk in any year? Yeah, okay, yeah, right. So that's what we did anyway, and that's and that's what that was the work with AIDS. Yeah, know? yeah. So there are many directions we can go here, but Jerry, you wanted to talk a little about uh, the consciousness of giving. Yeah. 
that uh, it's pretty hard to live in the ego world when I'm feeling you're not getting enough and being concentrated on what you can get and what you can keep. And uh, the ego has a, an unsatiable appetite for us to keep getting more and getting more and getting more. And uh, in our work, uh, we feel we have everything we need. Um, I was visiting an attitudinal healing support group for adults who had metastatic cancer. And a woman about 58 years old started to say, Jerry, I've been coming here for five years in your group. I've read all your books. And I still haven't had one moment of peace of mind. Is there anything you could do or say tonight that might help me see what I'm missing? So not knowing what the answer was, I suggested that we all be quiet as you did earlier today. And then let's go inside and still our mind and see what comes out. Then I opened my eyes and I noticed there was a mother with metastatic cancer that had her two-month-old baby with her. And that little voice inside said, ask the mother if we can borrow her baby for a minute. And so we took the baby over to this woman and said, are you willing, just for two minutes, to give all of your focus on loving this baby, holding the baby, and not thinking about anything else but focusing on love, giving that love? Yeah, I think I could do that. After two minutes, uh, I suggested the baby be removed. And she said, no, no, I want to hold the baby some more. And I said, well, you can in a minute, but I want to talk to you for a, minute, for a minute. During that two minutes, were you thinking about your cancer? No, no, no I, thought I was loving the baby. Did you want anything to be different? Well, no, I was focused on giving love to the baby. And then I asked the $64,000 question, by any chance were you feeling peace of mind? Oh, yes, I was. And I said, well, you have the answer then. You can go through the rest of your life not thinking about your cancer, not worrying about it, but finding people to give love to and focusing on that. And when you start to focus on that, it's a good way of letting go of our focus on our body and our worries about our body. One of our meditations in the morning, every morning, is that uh, today's going to be the happiest day of our lives. We commit to that. Happiest and best day, meaning whatever happens, yeah. we'll learn from it. No matter what's put on our plate and no matter what the state of our body is, and when you really believe that happiness is part of our spiritual DNA, 
Being kind to others is part of our DNA. Being compassionate is part of our DNA. Having a still mind is part of our DNA. You begin to focus on that rather than all the stuff that comes from our ego mind of form. So I wanted to say those few things. We, uh, we all wanted to talk about relationships. You've done a lot of uh, seminars and trainings on relationships. And you talk in, in your books about the movement from special relationships to sacred relationships. And I found that truly interesting. Um, I have a lot of reflections of my own. But what do you mean by the movement from special relationships to sacred relationships. You want to start me? Yeah, go ahead. The ego divines love into specialness, a special kind of love for your children, your grandchildren, people you work with, Etc., etc., etc. And in relationships, the way the ego looks at it, at least, is that we have a relationship that's better than anyone else's relationship. And I love you more than I love anybody else in the world. And that's what I consider the special relationship that the Course of Miracles talks about. And um, when Di and I married, or before we were married, we were talking about some of the things we both would be interested in committing ourselves to. One of the things was that was very important to us to put our relationship with God to be more important than a relationship with each other. And uh, we also committed to make alive each day that we'd be holding each other's hearts gently and doing the same to everyone else. Those things were really important and not use words as weapons. So, in a sense that we came together not out of neediness, but feeling that we were two holes coming together that would devote our lives not only to service, but devoting our life to experience our holiness with our Creator. And like you, we're working in progress. And I think as long as we're in these bodies, that will probably be true. But we do have one special in, in, in moment, a holy instant, where we can really feel the voice of God talking with us, reminding us 
how important forgiveness is in our lives, how important it is to be in gratitude not only for each other, but for everything that is happening in our lives and to focus on that. So it's my feeling that when we have that kind of holy instant and when we're seeing only the oneness with each other, when we're seeing only the light in each other, that it's not a special relationship, but that we're seeing everyone in that. And when we're seeing ourselves in the light of the world, we see everyone as that light. We see ourselves as spirit, not bodies. And we see ourselves as the will of the love of creation. So we do our best to listen to that voice, not always being successful. But when I heard you calling intuition, I think might be better stated as you're listening to that inner voice of love. <laughs> and uh, knowing that when you're doing that, you then see the other people that you may have had a judgment against as the light also too. And that's where the miracle happens that I had mentioned earlier this morning that it's a shift in perception that removes the blocks like attack thoughts, judgments, and sees only the love and the light. And to see that our mind and creation's mind, God's mind, whatever you want to call that, has no judgments, has no cruelty, has no fear. Another lesson we like doing is I have no idea which one to learn. Aren't you going to read my mind? No, I certainly do not. He's got fear. Fear love. Oh, perfect love casts out all fear. Yeah, okay. Mm. Can you say that a little perfect, more? Perfect love casts out all fear. That lesson's been a very mm. nice reminder for both of us. Mm. What would you like to add about holy relationships then? Oh, gosh. Um... Well, it's interesting that in reading A Course in Miracles a couple of dozen times, um, it's all about relationships. And because, you know, without bodies, the whole world as we know it would be completely different. So everything, the love, the fear, everything attached to it all has to do with, body, with bodies and what bodies do and don't do. So one of the things that Jerry didn't say is that we also tear up our scripts for each other. There's a picture in Love is the Answer of a woman, it's me, standing over the garbage pail, tearing up my script for Jerry, one of the first early times on the stage. Um, you know, we go back and forth and we have no script. And so you have to trust each other. And it was learning trust because he started talking about something really personal in my mind. I'm going, I can't believe he's saying this in front of all of these people. I was like mortified. And, um, and then I thought... I've got to move out of this place. I'm like frozen here. And he's like talking. And, and I'm thinking, okay, I need the answer now. How can I move from here? And I saw what I had just said written on a script, and I tore it up in my mind. And I thought, oh, tear up your script for Jerry, and then everything he says will be perfect. And that was one of my big moments on the stage. And I remember 
One time when Di and I were speaking to a large audience in Seattle, Washington at the Opera House, <laughs> and uh, I was looking through the peak hole, the audience. At the very beginning? When yeah, the very beginning. And uh, all of a sudden I felt I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I excused myself, and it was this crazy kind of thing. I go to a hallway, and I went to the bathroom, but I couldn't find my way back. And Diane's waiting there for me to come back. And said, I'm going to never forgive Diane. <laughs> We're going to the bathroom at this awful time and not being here. Well, I knew that nobody came to see me. And the place was packed, thousands of people. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to kill him. I can't believe it. Because the guy started announcing us. He's out there on the podium. And I'm thinking. Well, I just oh got God. back there before. Just a second before it opened. Second. And. Guess what the subject was? <laughs> Forgiveness. Forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as I opened it up, we went out, and then we started laughing, and we told people what just happened. It was the perfect teaching because it was, I mean, without forgiveness. I can't imagine ever having a long-term relationship without lots of forgiveness um, and giving up your script for others. And um, uh, so, so the, the interesting thing with our, our belief system or what has, I think it's pretty parallel, Jerry's and mine, um, is that the relationships we, we, we believe we have participation in the world we create and the world we see. I don't think it's, 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 I don't think it's so random. I think there's a relationship between consciousness and what I see and what I experience. If I'm in uh, Kosovo, if I'm in wherever I am, that's looking at ISIS, I'm co-creating this. My father co-created my father with him, this relationship. So there is um, empowerment in that, in the sense if I believe that, this works for me, may not be true or work for anybody else, but for me, it's like if I co-created this incident, it's like taking full responsibility, not blame, not shame, not judgment, but full responsibility for the, my higher power in creating this for me to learn from, then, okay, this is where I am. And what is it I need to learn? So when you come together with that in any relationship, um, in ours, it's mutual because we both understand that. And then what happens is you just, you just like show up right where you are. It's sort of, and you can move forward with it because you've taken the relationship. You're not, you're not blaming the other person for what's happening. So I co-created it. I have a private counseling practice, and I, I love working with couples too. And oftentimes people will say, oh, we're so mismatched, we're horrible. And then I figure it out and I go, you know, actually, you're like perfectly matched perfect for what it is that you came to work out. Whether you stay together isn't the issue. It's if, is, is, Can you understand what it is that you came to do together at this moment around these issues? And they always go, oh, you know, I mean, that's the bottom line of it. So I think that everything we experience together, we know that we're, we're learning from. Um, let's see. Well, a holy relationship you can have with anyone. There's something that, of course, is like a holy instant or holy encounter. Is when you meet with someone in any any experience. It could be 10 seconds at the checkout counter. But when there is that mutuality of connectedness uh, in your heart, 
where you don't feel separate from the other person. That is a, a holy encounter, a holy instant. And that's why for me, ISIS or political leaders is very, it's very uh, important for me to work towards remembering. And I forget it. I forget it like every other night when I watch the news sometimes. But then I remember, oh, that's right. This person's part of me. And uh, if I take away my judgment, this is very Buddhist in the sense of the aso. You take away the judgment from it, then you're just with it. So I think the journey and relationship for us is learning detachment at the, at the best, in the best possible way. Um, I know it's a life lesson for me. And the universe has shown it many ways. Do I say something? Yes, I do. Um, that was very hard for me to think of myself as being holy. I remember when I first met Diane, I said to her, and well, it looked like we were falling in love, and I said, uh, Diane, there were so many things in my past I still feel guilty about, I still feel shameful about. Even though I've been on a spiritual pathway, I'm still struggling with those. And if, I, if you know those things... If you really knew me. Yeah, if you really knew me, uh, I don't believe you could love me. And Diane was silenced for longer than I wanted her to be. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, well, we'll see. <laughs> because I knew at that moment that there was nothing I could say that would be, you know... That, that would appeal to the curious ecosystem or what, what, that was true. And I said, we'll see. And, and then, then, then in our 25th wedding anniversary, I think it was Hawaii, uh, you came up to me all of a sudden. Well, in the middle of the ceremony, I said, said yeah. hey, Jerry, do you remember 25 years ago when you said that to me? And he went, when I said, you said to me, if I really knew you, I could never love you. And he said, yes. <laughs> and I said, I just want to tell you that you were wrong. <laughs> that was the other half of the sentence 25 years later. And it's true. He was wrong. Yeah, I, so these, I think most of us are fascinated by relationships. Do you know that the modern love column in the New York Times is one of the most widely read of all Really? The, yeah, it's, it's a great column for those of you who aren't aficionados of, of it already, but it's, you know, it's about relationships. And But one thing I wanted to go toward is your distinction between special relationships. Do you call them sacred or holy relationships? We call them holy, but it can be sacred, okay. uh, yeah. And so I, um, I like the Greek and Sufi traditions that the friend with a small F leads to the friend with a capital F. Mm. That, uh, you know, when Rumi met Shams, Rumi was an academic philosopher, right? He meets Shams and they create this profound platonic love relationship. And, and, and Rumi is transformed by it, of course. And then when he loses Shams, the whole world opens up to him as Shams, you know, basically. And he begins to write this flow of love poetry that is one of the greatest in, in history. Uh, likewise, uh, Socrates felt that, um, that 
the, the yearnings that we have in youth for another person should be encouraged because over time, the nature of that which we love can grow and expand. So to me, that notion that the friend with a small F leads to the friend or the divine or whatever you want to call it with a large F um, has a different inflection from what you are describing. In your description, the special relationship is a limitation of the ego, that the ego invests this one person with all these qualities and keeps us from generalizing it. And it puts more coal on the ego's belief right. that separation is true. Right. But, but it's, it's not just in a mutual, it could be with a political figure. It could be. That's a special, anybody could be a special relationship. It could be. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the point I'm making is that this other inflection, which I'd love to explore with you, is that, that these special relationships, in fact, can be the pathway to the divine. And that, uh, that through these, we may come more and more to understand that. And precisely because of the addictive quality of the special relationships, mm -hmm. which are addictive, mm -hmm. like that, as, as Jung said to Bill W., the answer to that is the divine, which involves the recognition over time that what you're really seeking is not this person on whom you have focused all of this. It is, it is that universal and inexhaustible relationship to God or the divine or whatever, or nothingness if you're a Buddhist or whatever, it doesn't really matter, but that, um, that it is a path to that. You're listening to part two of a two-part TNS conversation with Jerry Jampolsky and Diane Chirincioni Jampolsky. So... We know we are the path to with helping each exactly. other. Exactly. Yeah. So in any case, I, I, I see that as just a modestly different interpretation of this relationship, of special relationship to... Can I add something to yeah. that, Michael? Yeah. Um, I didn't mention that when I first came to understand this early on, um, I had to come to terms in my own mind and said, oh, wait a minute. I'm like, really like, really like loving this person so much. So this is like a really special relationship. And I thought, oh, how do I transform that? And so what came in some of my writing in Sounds of the Morning Sun, which we don't have here, but it's a poem called Thoughts on Love. And I, it's very short. I don't have it memorized because I don't tend to memorize things. But it basically was, okay, how, if I love you above all others, that's going to separate me from all others. So how do I come to terms with that? And what I came in resolution with is that, oh, I'm not going to love you less. I'm going to love others more and use you as a guiding possibility of how I can love others and then how I can come to love God. So that's how I came to terms with it. So I could just love Jerry as much as I want. And as long as I, my heart is open to love others. Um, 
And so that is how I came to terms with, internally, with that idea of special. Attachment has been funny little lesson that's run through my life, a life lesson. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'll just tell you a short little story. I had a ring. This is one, this has happened in different ways at different times. It was a little, like a sundial and it was really, it was a very inexpensive ring, but I really loved it. And I remember sitting at my kitchen table with the houseboat and thinking, um, oh, I just love this ring so much. Someday when I have fun set aside, I'm going to make one like it that's even you know, more silver or gold or something. You know, I really like it. And I walked down to my desk and I sat at my desk, which is only like, what, 12 feet away. And the ring fell apart in three pieces off my finger. I still have it on my desk. Irreparable, not in places that where a ring would have broken. It just fell off my finger and came apart. And I went, okay, I got it. I got it. So it's always a reminder to me, like in the morning when we're so grateful, we wake up with real gratitude of, we're always so amazed that we have heat in our house and that we live in a house and that we have water. And we never let, we never, ever, ever take this for granted because so many people don't have it. Um, and likewise, I, I say, I love it all, but I'm not attached to it. And I go, well, I love Jerry so much, but I'm not attached to Jerry. Don't take him away yet. Um, but anyway, so that's a big lesson. That's been a life lesson for me. And the universe has been very abundantly clear to me. <laughs> it's my time to learn this. Yeah. Did you want to add to that, Jerry? I was thinking that... Uh, we have special relationships with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Special hate relationships. Mm-hmm. Self-critical relationships. Mm. And all relationships come from our own mind. It's, about, it's all about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Looks like it's about other people, but it's really about ourselves. So even when we're talking about the benefits of forgiveness, it's not about those people out there. And many people also misunderstand forgiveness. They think forgiveness means the other person's going to change. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the willingness to let go of the anger that we're holding on that causes us to be separate. Or the perception that there's anything to forgive. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's all I wanted to say at that moment. Yeah, I find that in addition to the very special to sacred relationships that also just in the course of the day or the week or time with people, there simply are people with whom I resonate more deeply than I do with other people. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. In other words, I'm not sure that, that I'm not sure I'm supposed to love everybody the same. It depends on what you think of as love. What is that? Right, that's true. But just as I think that special relationships, the friend leads to the friend, I think that there are um, morphic resonances, to use Rupert Sheldrake's word, between, (laughs) among people, and that there are people, like the people who've gathered to work together at Commonweal is a good example. I mean, we're a very strange group of mavericks, but somehow or other, uh, people seem to fit together. Um, 
in some strange way. And there's a form of recognition of each other. Um, and Jennifer Stoll, who's here, the director of the retreat site, has a beautiful phrase that she uses that I've borrowed often. Um, she says about the Cancer Health Program staff, we've been working together, many of us, for 25 years or more. And she says that one of the things we do as the staff of the Cancer Health Program is that we see each other into being. And I love that phrase, we see each other into being. Mm. You know, it is that we're not... That's beautiful. Yeah. It's like walking in, walking someone home. Right. Seeing each other into being. We're I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. But you remember that the, the love, I, what I didn't say about the poem, excuse me, is that the last part of it was that in love in itself, I think is unchanging. The expressions of love right. are appropriate to the situation. Right. So I wouldn't love a stranger on the street, wouldn't show it in the way I do Jerry yeah. or a child. With right. it's, it's, it's all appropriate. I can love at a distance. It doesn't mean I have to see somebody or like them right. or, you know, it, or even have them in my life. Right. Uh, but I can still, at the highest level, love them. That's what yeah. that was about. Yeah. It's like raising it to that level where we are connected, mm-hmm. and then it's just appropriate in its form. Someone you have a horrific relationship with that's just unchangeable, mm-hmm. and uh, and you need to have them out of your life, mm-hmm. you can still, like a child sometimes, or a parent, or someone you love, it's very painful, very painful, but it's mm-hmm. clear that you aren't going to connect in this lifetime in a positive way, but you can still love them because... Our belief system is that all love is received. It's just the ego that wants to see it perform in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So. One of the things in our Aging with Attitude book is um, learning how to be interpretless. And at least it's my experience that the ego always wants us to interpret people, whether they're faithful or trusting, or, or, you, or you like this person more than another, but we're still looking at Pearson's behavior to make that judgment. We're still making our intellect our God. And our grand, two granddaughters, one's now 30 and, no, the other, Alexa. Uh, Lexi's like 23 and a half. Lexi's 23 and Jelena is 25. But then when they were about seven or eight, um, they were down in Chinatown in San Francisco, and they bought us a Christmas present. And Michael, there were glasses that had love on them. Uh-huh. So it meant wherever I looked, I only was going to see love. Uh-huh. <laughs> like one of the cartoons from which, Love is Letting Go. Which yeah. is really what The Course of Miracles yeah. is all about. Yeah. Right. <laughs> to use the lens of God. God's not going to make any these things that our ego right. says, well, I like this person more than that, or, or what have you. At least my understanding of the conscious of God is, is that uh, we're one, we're united as one. There's no separation. So I have a couple of personal questions for both of you that came up from just our conversation so far. Diane, let me start with you. You mentioned that you have a spiritual name, which is what? Anaya. Anaya. And you also mentioned that before you met Jerry, you had had experiences with remote viewing and those kinds of things. So 
tell us a little about where you got the spiritual name and what the history of your, whatever you want to call intuitive or capacities um, in that realm have been. Well, um, unlike Jerry, uh, my, I came in to a family that was had faith, etc., and I believed it, and um, so I always felt a connectedness with spirit. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I had an experience when I was about three and a half, um, three and a half or four, um, that I remember looking at my fingers like this, and. In my mind, I was saying, I was kind of like, you know, like, like kind of ticked off. And I remember looking kind of irritated like, oh, somebody stuffed me in here and I have to stay here all this time. I was like, ah, I realized I was inside this body, but it wasn't me. And, and I went, oh, oh, well. And then I went out and played. Mm-hmm. And I forgot about it and I remembered it years later. But I knew at that moment, so I've always known that there was, uh, uh, I always felt loved by the source. And my mother, having been really dedicated to the Blessed Mother uh, as a mother for her, um, I have always felt that deep connection. And um, it could be Mother Earth, Gaia, Blessed Mother, Mother of Jesus, could be any. But that's, I've always felt that connection. And um, I, uh, yeah, in my late teens and 20s, I used to do just, I thought it was like a game we made up with a, a boy I helped raise and, and my, my, my niece, who's my goddaughter. We would just do like these games. And my partner too, actually, who I was in business with. We would do these games where we just pass thoughts and images back and forth to each other's minds. And we got really good at it. We were like, you know, 95% accurate. And I just thought everybody did it. And then one time I wound up by accident uh, I went to a lecture at the Unitarian Church in San Francisco, and it, was, it wasn't what I thought it was, but it was Elizabeth Rauscher, and, uh, and, and they were doing, these physicists were doing this remote viewing, which is kind of what noetic science picked up, et cetera. And, they were, and I was sitting there, and, and they were talking about this stuff, and I'm thinking, oh, that's what we do. It's sort of like fun, but it was like a big thing. In the, it was like in the late 70s. And then... So that the Elizabeth Rauscher, I said, I said in my mind, God, God, you know, I'd really like to talk to you at the break, you know, just to kind of get <laughs> before the break. She goes, who, who are you out there that wants to talk to me at the break? Where are you? Are you? <laughs> it's like it was really cute. Anyway, so that just showed me all that. All that is about is that there's multiple dimensions that we have a lot of capabilities. It's sort of like the magic, you might say, magic tricks that the ego says, oh, there's another way of looking at the world. Um, I think that, um, yeah, it's been, I, I find, I find, I never, never found A Course in Miracles difficult because to me it's a language that makes so much sense to me. Where does Anaya fit into the way Um That came in my, in my writing and I didn't know what the name meant so I did a, I went down to Hermitage, actually, also used their library, had some scholars looking, went to the New York Egyptology section, tried to find this name in history, and I couldn't find it. Finally, I was in New York City at the 42nd Street Library. Jerry was in Egypt already. We had been invited by Jahan Sadat, and um, I was going to meet him, so I left New York. But in New York, I went to see if I could find this name, and I found it as the 
Yes. Um, the uh, architect, you might say, under Hatshepsut of the pyramids, etc. And I thought, oh, the same spelling. So then we go to Egypt. We visit with Jahan. We go down to Luxor and Thebes and Karnak. And we are in this old place in um, the Valley of the Kings. And I were walking around this magical, this is like old dingy room with the thing in the middle. And I walk in and, and all of a sudden I have this unbelievable experience. I thought, oh, I know this place. I know this place. Well, anyway, that was the first room that was built of all of it. Then we go up to leave, go to the platform area, and all of a sudden, I start getting really sick. I said, Jerry, you have to take me to the restroom. And I go to the restroom, and this gold fluid flows out of my body, just keeps all these gold sparkly things out of my body in the bathroom. And I came back out, and we sat down, and a man came in who was a guide, and he said he had just uncovered about two months before this individual being's tomb. It was filled with, ap- with amethyst, and it was, which is my stone, and, and his name was Anaya. And so I think that somehow there was that connectedness from that space. And why did all that happen? I think just to show me that there's a reality beyond this physical world. And I don't understand it all, but I don't need to. Anaya is spelled how? A-N-A-I-A. And so he was the architect. He's like he was the, the like the prime minister architect under Hatshepsut, which who was the first female ruler in Egypt, who I believe is the reincarnation of Jahan Sadat, which I said to her, and she said, "You know, I'm Muslim, and I can't believe in that, but I've always felt that myself." <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that's for whatever that's worth. That's what came at the time. And again, I think it's ways that the universe kindly shows us that there is more than the five senses of our reality. That worked for me. Mm-hmm. Jerry, the thing I wanted to come back to from your description of your life is, and I think this is accurate, but you, you, you emphasize a lot how as a hyperactive learning disabled child in a family that was fearful and, you know, rushed and your two brothers excelled and you were held back in kindergarten and struggled and so on. And then you tell the story about how you, you know, almost failed the English test and just barely get into medical school. But you don't really say that I have seen how this learning disabled, depressed kid who thought he was stupid managed to get through all these schools and you don't by accident get into Stanford Medical School. So I'm trying to figure out what were the sources of strength and resilience that enabled you to do that. And I don't think that comes out in your writing. It was World War II. And um, I was considering becoming a um, conscious objector and going to jail or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden I saw a notice in the paper about the Navy, B-12 program. And um, 
another guy, a friend of mine who's Jewish, as I was, went to Los Angeles to try to join the V12 program. And out of the 10 people that went there, we were the only two people that were accepted. And I just had some real strong intuitive that this guy was prejudiced against Jews. He tore up my, my things. So I went to Los Angeles, and I lied. They said, have you ever made an application? And I said, no. <laughs> Thinking that it was non-existent. And I got accepted. They were very much wanting daughters. That's the only way I got it at Stanford. Not because of grades, because the, the government needed daughters fast, and I got into Stanford. Now, how did I get through Stanford? To be honest with you, I have no idea. <laughs> but I, I know I, in order to even begin to learn anything, I had to read it out loud. So I developed an auditory feedback system. And um, you see the book I'm reading, I just finished, Grit? Grit. Grit. There's a book named Grit. Talks about people who never give up and people have great compassion. And what was the other thing? Passion and um, perseverance. Perseverance. And my two brothers and I have that. My parents had that. That grit, if you will. So somehow I had, I just believed in the impossible that I was going to be able to get through. What I haven't put in my writing, I think, is that... Uh, I got A grades in, in, uh, when I was doing anatomy, doing a uh, cadaver, because right. I touch me. Mm. But I made very poor grades. Uh, I got very good grades in making, in clinical medicine, making accurate diagnosis, but for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. You were totally intuitive. He understood it. Um, You talk about Jerry being a resident. You, you, you. Yeah. When you weren't being graded, you became yeah, well, chief resident. I, yeah, I'm just trying to finish the story now. Let's see. Mm. Um, I graduated on probation from Stanford Medical School, mm -hmm. depending on how I did in the, my internship. Well, my internship, in my mind, there are no exams anymore, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, the very end of it, I found out I was the top intern. But I had a lot of anxiety, apparently, in the past about taking exams. And um, so I, um, I, I, when I got my, when I tried to get my, what do you call it, the license to practice medicine, uh, I flunked it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second time I took it, I made up my mind that I was not going to be anxious. I was not going to be fearful. I was going to do my best job that I, that I could. And I passed. Again, 
Some years later, when I was poor Diane was in my life, and did a lot of traveling, came back, my secretary said, we just got this letter from Sacramento, says you no longer have a light ability to practice medicine. I said, why? They said, you didn't pay your your dues in the end. I said, oh, I, I did. Go back and look. So I called Sacramento, and they told me they failed by accident to send out their do things to 400 people, and they all lost their license, including me. So can you imagine me, wanting, after years being out, <laughs> wanting to, to uh, pass an exam? Then I didn't feel... F- f- the old Jerry as a kid came back, and how am I ever going to do this? And I started to go to Marin General Hospital and other places to try to learn things. And, and, uh, and the examination was an oral one. And to my amazement, I, I got the first three questions correct. The fourth question, I had no idea what it meant, let alone how to understand it. And just as I was about to say, I don't know, that little inner voice said, just be still, don't say anything. That happened three times. And the miracle was, out of my mouth came the correct answer that I had no idea, which taught me that all knowledge is up there. Mm. All knowledge is up there. And somehow... Through a miracle, I was able to tap into it. I never thought of myself as smart. I've always thought of myself as ordinary. But sometimes ordinary persons can do something that are spectacular. And I've been very fortunate in being on a spiritual where many fascinating things happen. I remember... Christmas, I usually make a list of whom I'm going to call. And this one person used to be a facilitator at a center in Tiburon and uh, now live in Hawaii. And his name came up. I was supposed to call him. I said, okay, I'll call him. So I called him, and we had this talk for about 45 minutes. And then he stopped and said, you don't know this, Jerry, but my wife just left me yesterday. And you're the only one that called me on my on Christmas Day. No, I, I had no, said to you before that, why are I, you calling I, him? We don't I, hardly I, even know him. You know, I had no rational kind of mm. thing. And yet, I've learned to take, take orders from my inner guidance, even though it may not seem rational. Mm-hmm. And those things keep happening over and over again. Mm. And I think that's just because I've learned to listen better. Mm. Not because I'm brighter. Let me just. Well, Jerry, thank you for that, and um, and I I I know that what you're saying is authentic. Um, uh, you know, I'm I have a great belief in the power of humility, um, just because I think it's if you understand the universe at all, humility is really the only possible relationship with it. And, you know, um, or you're stupid. <laughs> yeah. And um, 
In fact, the people who I have the hardest time with in the world, actually, uh, for the most part, are people who um, are carrying some belief that they're spiritually superior. I really find them hard. I forgive them. I understand they're doing their best and everything else. But I really get slightly nuts uh, <laughs> when people, you know, carry some attitude of spiritual arrogance. It really is a hard one for me. Uh, which, which is an interesting conversation because it's yeah. like we have many examples of yeah. that in the world, mm -hmm. um, all, all the way to extremes, yeah. that if you don't believe with me, I'll, the same as me, I'll kill you. Right. Um, and there seems to be some level of parallel for me when I try to understand it on an intellectual basis, um, that whenever I see that, that intensity like, oh, do you worship where I worship, or do you, sorry, no, um, that inherent in the fundamentalism of that is fear that, unconscious, I think, but fear that if you don't believe the way I do, it's a threat to how I believe. And that has given me more compassion. It used to be more an irritant like you. It's like a lack of tolerance for it. And now I think um, it's just the frame of the illusion that that person needs to have in their life to make them feel safe. You know, um, there's a line that runs through. I've been working on this book forever, but called Am I Good Enough? And um, there's a line in it that I use as a stream of consciousness, and that is something like, um, throughout our lives, there are different times and different experiences where, not necessarily on a conscious level, but that we, we give up parts of our true selves in order to get what we think we need to be safe. Mm -hmm. I think that is true and beautiful. Whether it's surviving childhood, mm -hmm. that's harsh, whatever it is, you know. And that, coming to create that in my mind and understand it, has given me much more compassion to the point of trying to go to non-judgment mm -hmm. of someone who is so fundamental in their belief that they are threatened if you don't feel the same way or they have to attack you if they feel the same way. To see that as a level of fear and then again, to try to join with them on the higher level. I don't need to make them feel wrong in order to feel okay about it. It's just, so, so I think that, that I have experienced that also, Michael. Um, and it's been helpful to me to see that as fearful. And the, the, the last principle of attitudinal healing that I can choose to see someone as either loving and extending that love or that they're fearful, mm -hmm. giving a call of help for love. That, that fear shows itself in many ways. And um, whether we, it's one of us who's upset with the other, to see that as fear, and um, as opposed to attacking, even though it really looks like an attack. Um, and then it gives you another way of looking at the world and therefore another way of responding. We rarely ever attack back someone who we see as fearful. If we see them as attacking, we get out our lawyer mind and go, you know. But if you see them as fearful, it changes the whole dynamic for you. 
and therefore the situation. And that's one of the real powers of the principles. That I find that 12th principle life-changing, mm-hmm. life-changing when it's applied. Mm-hmm. You're listening to part two of a two-part TNS conversation with Jerry Jampolsky and Diane Chirincioni Jampolsky. Somewhere in one of your books, I think I remember a discussion of uh, St. John of the Cross and the darkness of the soul. And uh, I guess what I wanted to ask is that there's a way in which the trajectory of your lives can be seen as, you know, Jerry going through this difficult childhood and this depressed state and alcohol and, you know, failed relationships, this, that, and the other, discovers the Course in Miracles, starts the Center for Attitudinal Healing, then you have your experiences, Diane, with this inner writing and with your own um, inner work and so forth. Uh, You meet Jerry, uh, and together you do this work for all these years. So that's that's a uh, narrative that has great power. I guess the thing I want to ask you about is in all the years that you have been working together, both as two human beings in a relationship and uh, with the Course in Miracles, are there stages of that path that somehow you can describe? And within the framework of your relationship and your work together, are there stages in that path that can be uh, uh, described? Hmm. I never thought of it as stage-like, although that's how I think as a psychologist developmentally, but um, hmm, I never thought of it as stages. But Do you have thoughts on that, Cherry? I've never thought of it. Yeah, I never thought of it as stages. Well, then how do you think about it? It, In other words, it's been a path, right? So if we take out the word stages, have there been, in other words, one could see it as sort of this experience of... uh, transformation, mm-hmm. and then journeying together. And then you're at the other end. And then, and then there's the other end. How do you look at the difference so, between? Yeah, so, okay, yeah. okay. so what comes to my yeah, mind yeah. is that even though there's like all this experience in between, yeah. the intentionality here is identical to the intentionality there. Mm-hmm. And that's why we don't see it necessarily. We've had aha moments, but They've always been within the frame of the intentionality mm-hmm. of uh, having spirit be centered in our, our relationship and the exploration of that, the support of each mm-hmm. other in that, not using words as weapons, et cetera, et cetera, um, holding each other's hearts gently. And Jerry once turned to me in those the first few years, and he, he had a heart that said love on it, and he turned to me and he said, and he meant it, if I give you my heart, will you hold it gently? Mm-hmm. And I, I looked at it, and I knew this man was giving me his life at that moment. Mm-hmm. And I, I took it, and then I asked him the same in return. Mm-hmm. And we have. We have held each other's. So instead of stages, I say that there's a continuum. That's really a better way to describe us, I think. The continuum is we have always held each other's hearts gently. Mm-hmm. And we are very, very, very honest with each other. Sometimes people are like, oh my God, you guys are like so honest. But we, we are honest with each other and we are kind to each other. And um, 
forgiving of each other. And um, so I'd say the difference between then and now, I love that, that book by Jess Lear. It says, I don't know where I'm going, but I sure ain't lost. You know, we didn't know where we were going, but we never got lost, mm-hmm. either individually or collectively. We never got lost. Mm-hmm. And at the end, where we're sort of coming into the end of our lives now, the, the latter part, um, I think now is this, we've always been amazed at what our life, just amazed. My mother said, honey, what's it like to be you? <laughs> Wasn't that sweet? She said, what's it like to be you in your life? And I said, well, mommy, think it's like everybody else. I just do it every day. And I look at our life and I go, wow, it's, it's a beautiful life. And we were saying this yesterday. We're so grateful for our life. Um, as we come towards the end, there's this profound amazement at what is and, and the peace that we have with it and the... Uh, the gifts we've been given. Mm-hmm. And the last part of attachment that, that we're working with, there's really only one left that we're working with, and that's with each other. Mm-hmm. And um, wanting to, we are with that. We talk about it, we mm-hmm. be with it. And because um, we are so intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's sort of where we are in the journey now. Uh, does that make sense that it feels more it like does. continuing? Like if you ask me what are the threads that go through, I would say they're equal on both ends. Mm-hmm. Um, with youthfulness here and more wisdom here perhaps. But I don't see them as stage-like. I, I actually can't even break them down to the stages of in Ericksonian in any way. I wasn't thinking of Ericksonian. I was thinking of the mystical path, for Mm. example, of St. John of the Cross or others. Mm. They do describe stages in the mystical path, just for what it's worth, not that you should have that. We're probably just unaware of it. Yeah, but the other other dimension of that for me is I think of, um, you know, we're, we're... all three of us are in long-term marriages, you, you folks longer than us, but Charlotte and I have been married for 33 years. And I absolutely believe there are seasons in a marriage. You know, I absolutely believe there are seasons mm-hmm. in a marriage and that marriages change over time as we change. And that, um, that, uh, that each, each season has different challenges and different gifts, I would say. Um, and I would also say that's not only true of marriages, but of long-term relationships of many kinds, in work and friendship and so on, that they seem to go through seasons. I think seasons might be a better word than stages. So what I was trying to get at was the question of whether, uh, and, and it could well be that just given your deep commitments to each other and to your path, that really this doesn't apply to the two of you. I was simply trying to get at the question of whether, since this is a spiritual biography, uh, the story kind of both begins and ends with the discovery of the Course in Miracles and meeting each other. And then there's this long marriage and piece of work together, but but there aren't seasons or stages that you identify. And it sounds as if there aren't. 
I'd say that there aren't, but I might add that there are multiple, multiple experiences right. where we have learned in being together. Right. Learned about competition, about support, about all the different things you learn okay. in relationship that, but it's been more like this, like there's always uh-huh. this like, it's like constantly growing. And I think our, our expectation is that it would always grow. So there have been all these learnings together. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You okay. can't be on the stage together it's, for 30 it, years, like 35 years, and not have learning. Go, go ahead. It, it's like taking two steps forward and then another step backward. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in, in our growth system. Um, I, I, I haven't looked at it the way that mm-hmm. you're asking your question, but I would say in the last 10 years, there's been a big shift with me mm-hmm. and um, letting go of seeing any value in worrying mm-hmm. and seeing any value in any kind of concern about money. Mm-hmm. I remember saying to Diane before we got married, you know, in the first part of my life, I was very concerned about money and mm-hmm. what money could buy. And I said, that's not my, that's not my goal. My spiritual pathway is not, not what it was before. Mm-hmm. I used to think that a, a green Austin Healy would make me happy forever. And of course, I found out that wasn't true. I find that a used Subaru Forester has been a source of immense joy in my life. <laughs> in fact, so great that I recently bought another one. <laughs> but um, I do see Diane and I laughing much more frequently than we ever oh, did yeah. in our lives. Say that again. We'd laugh oh, much more frequently. Yeah. Wholeheartedly. A oh, lot. Yeah. yeah. It all starts to look a little ridiculous. So. Uh, we haven't talked about your vision yet. Uh, when did you begin to lose vision? How long ago was that? Well, I think I had a diagnosis when I was about 40. Oh, really? And uh, I've been fe- legally blind for about three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I don't see, as the ego would have it, that I've lost anything. Mm-hmm. I don't see it. I'm a victim of the world I see. Mm -hmm. Or my blindness. Um, And many people seem to comment to me uh, that they're inspired by the fact that I I always seem to be smiling and happy and uh, I I don't seem to be depressed about Mm -hmm. what's going on with me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I say that... uh, Learning, I think we've gained a lot in learning the value of a quiet mind. Mm-hmm. We actually have a tape on that and what is it? Audible, audible.com. Audible.com. Yeah, quiet mind. And some tapes on relationships on that. Um, that um, we've learned, we we used to be attached to our long to-do list mm-hmm. and all the projects we had. We accomplished a lot and we were doing a lot. And all the depression we had. 
about not getting the the, the uh, things done in time and all the other things. And uh, one of the things I think we've learned quite well is to be very careful about any kind of commitments. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can keep them? And I used to think I had to say yes to almost everything mm-hmm. asked of me. And now uh, we've learned to say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've learned to slow down in our minds um, and not be so much in a hurry and uh, live each day as if it's the only time in our lives. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a word called vigorous in the Course of Miracles, and I think we've learned to deal with that quite well because we were very vigorous about keeping these principles, spiritual principles, alive and uh, not letting our marriage get stale. Mm-hmm. And uh, between each day with an absence of the past hurts. We really, I think, did a very good job in letting go of past hurts. If you swing dance at 5.30 in the morning, there's no chance of it getting stale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> Who's got the questions? Kira's got them, great. Um, I wanted to, um, well, first of all, I just love this. Um, and um, If it's a difficult question, give it to Diane. <laughs> You said, I believe, that each morning um, you start by reading one one section of the Course in Miracles. Is that right? That's when we actually sit down to meditate. Um, it's after we've, you know, uh, done our we what we do greet the morning in bed, and then we get up and uh, uh, put on our gym clothes, and then um, we'll sit, we'll read something, we meditate. And then we go to the gym usually five days a week or so. So what did you read today? Um, I knew you were going to ask me that. When I read it this morning, I said, I'll bet Michael's going to ask us what we read today. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Mm. Yeah, let me think now. The memory. The memory. Yeah, yeah. We just finished this entire section on the dream about the nature of reality. And um, but this morning's section... Um, it was really about what we need to remember mm. and what we need not to. Bill Clifford had a, a nice way of saying it, uh, celestial amnesia, mm-hmm. <laughs> meaning let go of everything right. except the love you've given and received. And uh, oh, yeah. uh, that... When we're in the mind of God, even for that one holy instant, we're not we're not remembering anything except the nowness of that oneness relationship. Yeah, it was about memory and about about as bodies in human form, as, as uh, spirits in human form, that everything that we remember for the, has to do with form has to do with other bodies, has to do with some way we basically categorized it in our minds. So our filing system isn't necessarily true. 
It's just a list of our perceptions. It's everything that we remembered. So if it's still something that's bothering you and you want to take it out of the file cabinet, you can, you can heal it. You can't heal it then in the past, but you can heal it in the present. And so it was really about, it was about our remembering. About, not about remembering versus forgetting, but about of who we are, but uh, memory as to how we hold the experiences in our lives. So for us, healing the past is an ongoing thing. When things come up, I thought I could heal the relationship with my father. And then a couple of months later, something came up and I went, oh my God, I did a crummy job. I didn't do it. But no, that's not true. It was at the level of forgiveness I was capable at the moment. And then all the way up to the point where I realized, oh, it wasn't him I need to forgive. It's my thoughts and judgments about it. So that's this today sort of touched on that idea. I hear the questions asked a lot of people. Do you have any regrets? Uh-huh. And I don't have any regrets. I don't either. I think my mother was a perfect teacher for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are many other people have mothers like my mother. Mm-hmm. And I'm very grateful. He didn't that, have my mother. I became... Stronger because of what I experienced. Right, Jerry. Yeah. I hold her in great esteem and love today. I think that is the place of healing, of the forgiveness mandala. And it's ultimately, again, to that place, as I mentioned earlier, that where you see the gift of what was given to you and and you realize that this person has presented that with you. And then you can release it into your experiences and you can embrace it instead of, no, 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 it still hurts, it's not me. It's like, oh, this was my experience. And so I, I do believe that we don't have any regrets. We've done things whatever over the, our lives, but we don't spend our energy or time thinking woulda, coulda, shoulda done it. And also one of the ways that we have slowed down more to be quieter at this time in our life is that to realize that just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. Right. And discerning Just that. because we're good at it doesn't mean it's ours to do. That's for sure. Yeah. It's yeah. a good lesson to learn at this stage yeah, of life. Really. really. Um, there's some really good questions here. Um, here's the one I'd like to start with. How is it possible that the three of you have only now come together given the similarities and the proximity? <laughs> we don't know. That is like so bizarre to us, but uh, it's not, it's just, you know, we trust the timing of the universe. Right, there is a celestial coordination. <laughs> we have been sending people over here for years and yeah. he's known about what yeah. we've done. And um, it just, uh, we, there's been this like, and of course we know Naomi, yeah, but, but it's been a, a love and an appreciation and a respect. And that felt like we did know each other yeah. already. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Yeah. It's a belief for me that this is the right time. Yes, yeah. right. I agree with that. Mm. And, and I think for myself, um, in my own evolution, that I am, how can I say, it feels like a gift to me to meet you both at this point for my own evolution and the evolution of our work. You know, and vice versa. The healing circles work that we're doing um, is what you're doing is so applicable. And I just keep looking at what you've learned about how to do this work. And, you know, so there's a tremendous amount, which goes to the second question, um, which is such a good question. How do the Center for Attitudinal Healing Groups work? How do the Center for Attitudinal Healing Groups work? Did you want to say how the first group started, Jerry? And then we can, there was never really a big plan. And I can answer after that. 
My guidance was to greet a family, a group that would be there to create a safe environment for each other to communicate so that they would not be giving advice. They would be kind and compassionate, not attacking. And um, it was fascinating for me, like, to see people who are very close to dying, and you go by the their door, with, and you hear a lot of laughter. Other times you might hear a lot of like a lot of a lot of tears, but we created an environment where people are free to say what's in their heart. This is particularly true with people who uh, are going through the loss of another person or someone else has died, uh, and they're in our workshops for loss and grief. grief uh, people are are able to say things they wouldn't be able to say to other people because they thought people would think they were crazy. So uh, we create a safe place for people to feel insane. <laughs> and there are not many places where, <laughs> where you can do that. Now, uh, I don't think I mentioned this yesterday, but these, as a psychiatrist, there's a manual about that being long with different diagnoses. The DSM. Things like that. And I decided if someone had asked me to create a new diagnosis of insanity, that we are insane when we're not experiencing ourselves as love and giving that love away to everyone with no exceptions, and we're not withholding our love to anybody because withholding your love is just another way of attacking and that we are saying when we are in that consciousness, when we're in that zone, I'm just feeling the only reality is that I mean, my purpose here is to give love and forgiveness to everybody with no exceptions. And uh, lots of times we don't ask ourselves what is our purpose, but I think it's a great question to continue to ask ourselves what is our purpose throughout our lives. But then you, you often say, that means that most of us are insane most of the time. That's right. <laughs> right. Including us. Right, there's a brand new group. Oh, Jerry, did you want to continue about the group or do you want me to add to it? No, why don't you add to it? Okay, so there's a brand new group starting at Unity up in Hamilton Field in October with, with Lynn, Lynn Law's group. Yeah, it's going to be a fabulous group. I think first week in October or so. And um, there's all different models of centers and groups in the world. Some have a main center, like in Tokyo is the main center, and they're in 21 cities. And then but how does the group Holland. start? Yeah, I'll just mention the larger one first. So the larger then, one. What, the, the the tenants. Tenants. what would it be like? Okay, well, let, let, me, let me precede that, Jerry, by saying in 1975, most people in the room can remember that, there was no such thing as a support group. There was just AA. There's no, support group wasn't in our vernacular. So the starting of this with children wasn't like, oh, I'm going to start a support group. It was like um, you did a six weeks with these kids. It's like your guidance was that this one kid was a long-term uh, leukemia patient, and this other kid had just gotten diagnosed. 
and you thought maybe the one kid could help the other kid understand it, right? And, then, and so you brought these kids together for six weeks, and then at the end of six weeks, they wanted to keep meeting. And it was really up to the kids that was doing that. Anyway, so it began, then the brothers and sisters, parents asked for it. All groups have been asked for. So the group itself, um, it's usually two hours in length. Sometimes it's an hour and a half, depends on the country. There's a pre-meeting, post-meeting. There are facilitators, two facilitators at least in each group, right, guys? We have some members of one of our groups here. And... um, the, it begins generally with a coming into a quietness and holding hands, being present, and then going around reading the principles of attitudinal healing. We have something and reading, yes. Fast then. Okay. The purpose of holding hands is to remind ourselves what our purpose in being there is, and our purpose is to experience peace of mind and love with each other. And joining, and and then we also will read the guidelines which is the first set of guidelines, I think, for support groups ever. It's used in many, many places now. And um, then there, it's not a place where you're going to talk about your medical treatments, per se. It's, it's very, very helpful here, too. It's about your experience of it. It's about your own personal experience. Um, if someone doesn't want to talk, remember you had a little girl that didn't talk for a year? Two years. Two years in your group, and you know, she never talked. And... Um, you never forced her to, or cajoled, uh, cajoled her to talk. But she gradually did talk, didn't she? And two years later, yeah, she opened her mouth, never closed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, it's a safe place. The goal is everyone comes to a center for attitude and healing or has the inspiration that they're going to start a center or start a group. If you go on the website, ahinternational.org, there's right on the front page, do you want to start a group or join a group? The intention... Can I interrupt for a minute? Sure. Uh, Someone just mentioned to me lunchtime that uh, one of the things they learned that was so helpful was that they're not there to fix people up. Right. They're there to love people. And not to get bodies better. They're there to love people. Right. So everyone comes for their own learning and their own healing. I can always tell if a center is going to work or not. Our group's going to work. Because if people come there to do, oh, I want to start a center because of all these other people I want to help. Well, okay, but that's probably not going to work because you're really coming for your own healing. It doesn't mean you don't want to help other people. But it's all about your own healing. And as we give to another, we receive back. And it's a very loving loving environment. So we train facilitators. uh, um, And what's happened is because of Jerry's guidance, I think, for the capital G, to not control it. Um, it's all, that's very common. That's always common. The center is a place where you have two or more groups and you, have, you can provide training for people too. So the center's all over the world, different models of it. And in, in Holland, it's like they're in 61 cities in Holland alone. And there isn't a main building. So whereas other places, it's, there's all these different structures. 29 cities in Mexico and 11 countries in Africa. It just keeps going on and on. Um, the, what is so amazing to me, being the you know, director of Attitude and Healing International, is that here's a perfect example. We found out about three years ago that we found out this, 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 this doctor, got a hold of this Dr. Talat. He's in Islamabad. He's a psychologist. 
And in 2005, he came to the United States and another gentleman came and brought back, well, he didn't come, the other psychologist came and brought back. Maybe some people might not know that's Pakistan. And Pakistan. And, and brought back the best of what the U.S. had, which was like AA, et cetera, a few other things, and attitude and healing. And he wanted to start a residential treatment center for alcohol and addictions. And through their reading and learning, et cetera, they started the Nishan Foundation. It's a, uh, an addiction center, uh, and they call it an attitudinal healing center, attitudinal healing facility. Finally, we, we came together and we, we spoke together and we had many, many calls now. These people, by what's just available out there, not only started their own center, but were thriving. They had like 11 psychologists on, on but they, they had inpatient, they had outpatient. Now they've just started in Miran City, another city in Pakistan. And they were calling us saying, are we doing it right? And when we had these calls with Trish and Jerry and I, it was like flawless. I said, there is absolutely nothing. I mean, they knew they were all there for their own healing. They knew they weren't there to change other people. They were knew they were to create unconditionally loving environments. And in that, they have such an incredibly successful program. So I say it's so unabout, not about us. It's really about this work. Yeah. That's really helpful to me. Here's a question that um, I'm sure some listeners will appreciate an answer to. Um, please, do you think that cancer is brought about by problems in relationships? By what else? Some examples of how attitudinal behavior can prevent cancer from coming back. I've seen situations where the person recognized that her cancer was an attack on herself because of the relationship she was having with her husband. And um, her cancer disappeared without surgical or anything else. So that certainly can happen. But the purpose of attitudinal healing is not to change the body. The person the attitudinal healing is to give people an opportunity to heal their own minds. You know, there's a, in the introduction of, of uh, A Course in Miracles, there's one, liner, one line that almost tells you all about the Course. Nothing real can, can be, be threatened. threatened. Nothing unreal exists. Herein lies the peace of God. Could you say that again, please? Nothing unreal can be threatened. No. What was the first part? Nothing unreal can be threatened. Can be threatened. Um, Nothing unreal exists. Nothing unreal exists. Here lies the peace of God. Yeah. And um, if you think about that, they're talking about going into, through the door of what is not visible. To believe that what is really real is beyond form. So uh, we don't have a goal that people are going to change anything in their body, but we do have a, a way of helping people learn that even in their dying day, 
that they can feel peaceful no matter what's happening to their body. And I'd add to that, um, I think that we place duality on health. We were talking about that earlier, duality. But I think if the ego wants to say good health is better, poor health is 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 worse, or that you're good or bad or right or wrong, or you're doing it right or you're not doing it wrong, I think it's a giant ego trap from my perspective. It doesn't matter if it's an illness in your body, a situation that you're, you're being bombed in Aleppo, or whatever it is in our lives, it's just sort of what is, and this is my learning path. It could be a great relationship. It could be a horrible relationship. So I think the ego always wants to place judgment on it and measure us as to whether we're doing good or bad or right or wrong. But to me, in my experience working with others as well as with myself, it's so much less about what it is, whether it's cancer or something else, and more about, ah, I've co-created this. It's not bad or good. It's my learning path. So I, we, did, we did politics as a spiritual practice. So that was like huge for us. Um, so I think health is a spiritual practice. Cancer is a spiritual practice. Running is a spiritual practice. So I, that's my sense of it. Um, and I don't know if it answered the question, but we try to have no judgment on where someone is in their journey. And uh, we work at, again, healing our own minds uh, and our hearts as opposed to our bodies. And sometimes bodies do follow suit. We've seen things where you consider miraculous. And other times people leave their bodies at the end of their life. Um, but again, as I define health as inner peace and healing is letting go of fear, that's what these guys taught me, is that you can die completely healed and completely whole, even when your body is racked with cancer or with AIDS. Right. Um, question about whether you hear the inner voice as coming from within yourself or outside of you. I hear the inner, inner, I don't say. Okay. I hear inner also, but I think it's probably the most asked question in the world, don't you think? That question is asked yeah, a lot yeah, in this spiritual sure. journey, yeah. and I don't know, people get it all different yeah. ways. Right. I, I, right. I, it could be through writing, it could be, I mean, Anaya is just my spiritual part of myself that I open to, so I think we hear it in all different ways, and if somebody doesn't hear the voice, it doesn't mean they're a failure and they're not spiritual. It's sort of like, it's a whole big ego trip. Like, how do you hear the voice, you know? I think if, if the answer has love in it, in the sense of feels right, it's probably right. There's a place in The Course in Miracles that says, it talks about asking questions. And, you know, you, it's kind of like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you ask, oh, should I do this or should I do that? And... If the question you've asked is inherent in the answer, then it's probably an ego answer, ego question. But if you, instead, the opportunity is to say, what is it I need to know? And that is the place that we try to come to, is to say, what is it I need to know? After our ego's jockeyed around everything else, and just listen. And it could be related to that or not, but gradually just allow the space for it to come. Uh, question for Jerry, you use the description of a higher power as God, a term not used in attitudinal healing principles. You pray, what do you connect with when you pray? Is it internal or external? 
I think there's a, a book by Helen Schuckman who helped bring the course together. I forget the name. The of Gifts it. of God. Gifts of mm. God. Yeah. Her, her writing. And said the the highest form of prayer is a prayer of gratitude and thankfulness. Um, I don't pray for something to happen. Uh, I meditate every morning, and um, then I, while we're still in bed, we materialize our body into light, and we send that light to people who are suffering from cancer, or marital difficulties, people we know that, people who are immigrants, and um, that's part of what we do every day. That dematerializing is turning every molecule into light. So, I happen to think health-wise, that's a really good thing to do, to remember that ultimately we are light as opposed to just limited to a physical body. I live in really, really good health, and so does Jerry. And I think that's one thing that we do that is really helps us tremendously. Mm-hmm. You know, I was reflecting that um, when you describe what the attitudinal healing groups do um, and a whole bunch of the descriptors you use are exactly the same as ours in healing circles that it's a safe place that you speak from the heart that you listen generously you know these are our language but drawn from many others Um, and I see the circle, the healing circle, as a circle with a cross in the middle. And the vertical axis is the uh, mind-body-spirit healing work, which is essentially eternal. It changes form over time, but this goes back to shamanic origins. The horizontal axis for us is what I call the navigational axis. Yeah. And that, for cancer has things in it like choices in healing, medical therapies, integrative therapies, pain and suffering, death and dying. But you can change, although the vertical is eternal, the navigation access depends on the condition you're dealing with and depends on the specifics of your interests. So for example, you could have a cancer group whose navigational access was all about the healing arts. It was exclusively about the healing arts. It might have nothing to do with pain and suffering or death and dying. Um, so that seems to be, on the one hand, a difference from your groups, which aren't concerned with the, making the body whole. Um, my experience is that the people who come in our groups usually do have a specific challenge that they're working with that they're seeking navigational guidance on. But I think that one of the ways that you address that in a different way from ours, but an equally relevant way, is that you do have groups with different focuses, you know, whether it be cancer or HIV right. or whatever. Breast cancer, yeah. And so there's certainly a lot of informal navigation that goes around the edges when those people get together. Yeah, we just do it like before or after the meeting right when it comes to treatments. That's why we send a lot of people here, though, because right. it's such an integrated approach right. that really serves them so right. well. But it seems to me, whether one does it in the formal part of the meeting or the informal part of the meeting, that the vertical axis alone, when somebody's facing a specific challenge, 
benefits by a horizontal axis of helping people navigate in the world. I like your imagery. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that image is way predates Christianity, and it's the Celtic cross, but it's also the original sun god image. It's the image Mm. of the sacred Mm. sun. Well, we're coming to the end here, so I want to ask each of you whether there's anything that you would like to say as we close. I I want to say for myself that um, I have benefited so much from immersing myself in your work, from coming to know you both. Um, I feel the time is exactly right in my life um, to have the greatest benefit that I could have. Um, And I also would say that what touches me even more deeply than your writing um, is just who you are. You know, it's just who you are and just the the human qualities that can only be experienced um, either in person or by voice or, you know, it's hard to get the human qualities entirely through the books. And um, so the proof to me of um, the power and quality of your vision and your shared work is in um, your marriage and who you are. And I just thank you for being here. I would like to suggest that uh, our closing remarks might be with laughter. So I'd like to suggest funny, I thought the same thing. that uh, <laughs> Diane and I like to find new ways, new creative ways of giving love. So we have some friends actually going to be visiting us. Friday. On Friday, who had her 50th birthday, and, and uh, we decided we wanted to do something that was really out of the box. You want to start with that, then? Sure, yeah. This is a number of years ago. In fact, this is John Denver's manager, Hal Fawn, Dorothy Fawn, we've known as long as we've known each other. And they lived in Connecticut at the time. And we lived in San Francisco. We lived here. And we wanted to do something fun for Dorothy's 50th birthday. And um, trying to think of what to get her. We're not really big on presents. We don't really give each other presents for birthdays. We never kind of do that. We just sort of do it in between in our lives. Um, but we wanted to do something special for Dorothy. And so we planned a trip. We, we called her in the morning on her birthday and sang happy birthday to her and everything. And then we flew cross country. Where did she live? She lives in Connecticut. Okay. So we flew cross country. And um, we, <laughs> we landed at Kennedy. We had to go over to Connecticut. And um, Jerry found through his guidance, the right taxi driver that would do this with us. And um, we drove there. And what we had planned was, and we needed the taxi driver to help us, that we were going to, we got these big rolls of saran wrap, of like cellophane wrap, and this big giant bow. And we had the taxi driver wrap us up like this, standing up, standing up with a big bow on top, right in front of their front door. We, 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 we gave them a rather large tip to do this, and the instructions was to press the, the door, and then you can go leave. But he didn't leave. He hid behind a tree because he wanted to be part of the action. So, so he, he rings the 
the doorbell. <laughs> so we thought the best present we could give him was us, right? And uh, so we, we rang the bell, and, and Dorothy, Hal opens the door. Hal thought this funny guy. He was a great, great man. Oh, my God. He goes, Dorothy, there's, there's a present here for you. And I could see her feet up on the second level. She was up there. And she goes, well, honey, you know, bring it upstairs. I'm getting ready. And, and he goes, no, I don't think so. You better, you better come down here. And she came down and went, oh, my God. And it was really fun. It was one of the funnest things we did. And you were saying to end with laughter. And I was thinking that our new mantra in our life these last years is, because we've been pretty serious a lot of our life, and was is to let go, let God, and lighten up. Mm. Uh, well, thank you both, Jerry. And oh, my God. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Thank you. You've been listening to part two of a two-part TNS conversation with Jerry Jampolsky and Diane Chirincioni Jampolsky. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.